Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. My guest today is Dr. Ariel Ortiz Bobea, Associate Professor of Applied Economics and Policy at Cornell University. Ariel is also a faculty fellow at Cornell's Atkinson Center for a Sustainable Future. Much of his research focuses on the links between climate change and agricultural productivity, which is the topic of our conversation today. In particular, we'll be hearing from Ariel about a paper that he and a number of co-authors recently released in Nature Climate Change on the historical impact of anthropogenic climate change on global agricultural productivity. The key word here is historical. There's a large body of research focusing on future impacts, but this study looks back to see how much climate change has already affected agriculture globally. Spoiler alert, the impacts to date have been fairly large, and we're fortunate to have Ariel join us to provide more insight. We're actually recording this episode before the final publication date, but we're excited to bring you this preview. Stay with us. Ariel, it's very nice to connect with you again, and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Christine. I'm a frequent listener of the show, and I'm uh, delighted to be here. And I also uh, think fondly about my stint at RFF, so uh, always been a, a big RFF fan. Awesome. Well, it's great to have you back. Uh, so let's start with our regular introductions. And can you tell our listeners just a little bit more about your background, and in particular how you came to focus your research on the intersection of climate and agriculture? Okay, great. So uh, it's a long story, but I'll try to make it very short. Um, so, and I'll start with the latter uh, part, so my interest in ag. Um, and it really started just being the son of two agronomists, uh, spending okay. weekends going to the family farm in the Dominican Republic where I'm uh, where I'm from, so it really started there. Um, I studied agronomy in France, so I started with my studies, um, and over time I started to get uh, increasingly interested in social issues, food security, development, uh, and that's really what I thought I'd be only working on. And uh, the interest in climate came later when I worked in government. So I worked uh, at the Minister of the Environment and Natural Resources of the Dominican Republic, as a special assistant to the minister there, and saw many different issues uh, related to the environment in a developing country. And I, that's where my very strong interest in climate and agriculture um, came in. And so I did my PhD at Maryland, and that's where I focused on uh, climate change impacts on agriculture, still working on that, although I'm starting to diversify the different sectors that I'm working in. But that's kind okay. of the story. Fantastic. What was your favorite part of uh, life on the farm, I have to ask? Um, my my favorite part was like going fishing on my own. Yeah, so that's that uh, fishing was a, a fun part. Um, growing my own tomatoes <laughs> too. Um, very so, good. Yeah. So growing tomatoes <laughs> and fishing. <laughs> Fantastic. Sounds very relaxing. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's turn to the paper. And I I guess I want to start by kind of homing in on what's new about this study. And as as you mentioned to me as we were planning this episode, there are quite a few studies that look at climate impacts on agriculture, but most are forward looking rather than retrospective. So I guess I want to start by asking why did you and and the team that worked with you, why did you want to undertake a backward-looking study? And, and why does that matter? 
That's a great question. Um, the, <laughs> the beginning of this project, um, the idea really started with a bad interview that I had with a journalist a couple of years <laughs> ago. <laughs> so a journalist asking me questions uh, related to a, a study that I published in 2018. And um, it, it was, a journalist was very frustrated that I couldn't give them answers uh, to his questions. And the questions were good and they really uh, motivated uh, or at least planted the seed of this uh, paper in my in my head. And the questions were about the historical impacts. Where are places in the world where climate change is already affecting agriculture in a way that makes agriculture not viable in certain parts of the world? I just simply didn't have the answers, could have answered qualitatively, but not something um, quantitative. And so that really um, got me started. So uh, I guess the moral of the story is that even bad interactions, there's always a good side of the, you know, to them. Um, so that's a silver lining of, um, of conversations like that. Um, so why is it important? Um, you know, when you look at uh, opinion surveys um, about climate change in the general population, and I would even dare to say among people working on climate issues, is that we tend to think about it as a thing of the future, right? The future problem or maybe a, something in the present, right? So something that is becoming more imminent. Uh, but generally, we don't see it as something that has already happened, a thing of the past. And I think that is a critically important to um, to answer questions so that we know and we have um, estimates of how much climate change has already impacted us, right? So that we uh, build uh, sort of the critical support also, uh, not only the understanding of what the impacts are, but also the support for um, to uh, tackle climate change. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, we'll get to top line results in just a second, but I wanted to ask you one more kind of contextual question about another uh, innovation in the paper. And um, this gets into the one of the kind of technical details here. So you specifically note that you and your colleagues measure something called total factor productivity or TFP. Not a phrase that I'm particularly familiar with uh, or at all. So I guess I wanted to dive a little bit into that. And, and you look at TFP as opposed to looking at narrower measures such as crop yield or agricultural output, which my sense is that those are more kind of standard or uh, widely used measures. So tell us a little bit more about TFP and why you see that as a, an improved metric. Great. Um, the the first point is that we actually don't measure it ourselves. So that's one clarification. We actually use official statistics uh, from the U.S. government on ag TFP. So that's the first point. Like it, it, it takes a lot of effort to put these data sets together. And that's why generally you see agencies putting these data sets together and not just uh, individual researchers or smaller uh, groups uh, putting them together. Um, but but that's a important variable in the study. Um, and, and so I, I'm, I'm happy to talk about this. When people think about agriculture or generally they tend to think about, you know, cereal crops or field crops in general, right? Um, and uh, people think crop yields <laughs> and and uh, not only in the general population but also researchers a lot of the research has been done on field crops mostly cereal crops and the the issue with that focus on just uh, 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 these crops is that when you look at globally the value of that production represents about 20 percent of the global value in agriculture so that's a relatively small share of the total packet um, so in this study, we're trying to go broader and encompass all of the agricultural activities 
um, at the global scale. So that's where an aggregate measure is important, right? So that's the aggregate part. That's the first reason why TFP um, can be useful is because it, it boils everything down into one. So what is TFP, total factor productivity? Um, as the name indicates, it's a productivity to all factors of production. So instead of thinking about, say, uh, bushels per acre, right? So that's a partial measure of productivity because you're only uh, measuring output relative to an input, in that case, land. Here, imagine that you could do that to all the inputs, all the outputs and all the inputs together in one metric. So it, it, it condenses a lot of information. So you have to aggregate all the outputs. So we're talking about chickens, livestock, everything into a single output, and then all the inputs, land, fertilizer, chemicals, put them in, in another uh, aggregate input. And then all the output growth that you cannot explain by the growth in inputs has to come from somewhere, and we call that TFP. Right? So, so that's uh, the TFP metric. And so there's a loophole in the data. Uh, the thing is that uh, official statistics don't account for weather as an input. Um, so when you look at the TFP data, it jumps around and it jumps around on years that we know are, you know, say droughts or floods. And so you see all this changes in, in ag TFP. And it's not that people become kind of dumber from one year to the next, it's that there are omitted factors in the data. And what we do is that we harness that uh, volatility in the short term uh, from year to year in that data to capture the response of agriculture to weather conditions net of input responses, right? So we are capturing how farmers also respond to uh, environmental shocks um, in this way implicitly. So that's a great advantage of this metric. Mm, fantastic. Okay. All right. Well, I've asked you enough preliminary questions and I feel like I should stop the suspense. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about how you conducted the study and then the punchline, kind of what the top line findings are. Okay. So what we did is that we linked country level agricultural TFP data that we got from um, USDA, from the um, Economic Research Service. And we link that data with detailed weather data around the world. So that's a data set that goes back to 1960. Um, and what we did by linking these data sets is trying to characterize how weather change or fluctuations affect total factor productivity in agriculture at a global scale. Um, so that's the first point that we're trying to um, answer the question, how ag has evolved, evolves when uh, weather conditions change. That's the first kind of step in the study. The second one was that we needed to know how agriculture would have responded since 1960 if farmers were facing a different trajectory of weather conditions consistent with the climate without anthropogenic forcing. What I mean by that is that we are getting from climate models output that tells us how weather conditions would have been without human forcing in the climate system. And once we link those two things, right, how agriculture responds to weather conditions and how weather conditions would have been in a different world, then we can back out how much anthropogenic climate change is contributing to uh, changes in agricultural TFP. So that's kind of the essence of what the study um, is. And what we find in terms of the bottom line study is that when we look at agriculture um, since 1961, we find that anthropogenic climate change has reduced agricultural TFP by about 20% since 1961. So there's a 90% confidence interval, but like 
between minus 10 and minus 35. So there's an uncertainty around that um, uh, result. If you think about that in levels instead of just percentage terms, what that means is that the level of TFP that we globally are projected to reach this year, 2020, we would have reached that level in 2013 in a counterfactual world without anthropogenic climate change. So that, in a way, it's like it's wiping out. So anthropogenic climate change, it wipes out seven years of TFP growth since 1961, and with some uncertainty between four, you know, four and 13 years of uh, TFP growth, years of TFP growth lost um, to that. Um, we, we also get into uh, some regional um, impacts and country level impacts, but those are more uncertain. Results are more crisp at the global scale. Once you start going down into the weeds uh, in terms of you know regional um, effects, there's more uncertainty there. Um, but um, but yeah, the results are fairly substantial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I, I want to dive just a little bit deeper into this question of the counterfactual too, because that's always something uh, that I, I find particularly challenging to wrap my head around. And so in this case, as you mentioned, you used a climate model to sort of tell you what the world would have been like if uh, if human contributions to climate change had not occurred. And so can you say just a little bit more about the uncertainty that you embedded into that baseline assumption and just how you established that important piece of the study? Yes, and that's why we have um, climate modelers in the team, right? So that uh, so <laughs> that important part of the team, right, is not only economists, uh, we have our agricultural ecologists and, and also climate scientists in the in the team uh, to get this all these pieces together. Um, so one... Um, um, innovation, although it's been done maybe in another study um, as well, is the use of uh, climate models, so GCMs, climate models, uh, general circulation models, to back out what the weather conditions would have been in a world without anthropogenic climate change. Right. So if we want to know the cumulative impact of anthropogenic climate change, we need to know how the world would have looked with anthropogenic climate change, which is, you know, the world we're living in and the world without it, right? <laughs> and so we, um, and, and the problem with that is that we don't see that world, right? The, the current world is the only one we have. Um, and so we need to rely on climate models to play God and remove and go back in time and only remove the human influence on the climate system and see how it would have evolved. So that's something that is used a lot in the attributions literature in climate change uh, 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 literature, um, where folks are trying to figure out you know, to what extent, say, a heat wave um, is consistent with, say, internal variability um, of the climate system, or is it due to anthropogenic uh, warming? So, so that's um, what we do in terms of um, um, getting these counterfactuals out from the from the climate models. Thank you very much for that explanation. And certainly models are something that uh, we at RFF are quite familiar with. And uh, there, I think there's a fair amount of comfort with models like that, both in the economic community and obviously in the climate science community. But I, I did want to ask, I, I these models are complicated, they're mysterious. And I guess I just wanted to ask you, um, what you would say to someone who is kind of skeptical about relying on something as black box and complicated as a model to sort of underpin an analysis like this. I know you have to, you articulated very well why it's really a necessary component of the study, but um, how did you build your own faith in the models? Maybe that's my ultimate question for you. 
Great question. Um, the first point is that climate models are not the only type of evidence that climate scientists use to determine that humans are the cause of climate change. That's the first one, right? There's empirical evidence that that's a case. So when you look at the way that the atmosphere is warming, right, uh, at different layers, it is consistent with warmer at lower levels than at higher levels. So there's a change in the in the signature at different um, um, depths of the atmosphere that are consistent with something happening in in the lower right at the surface of the world, right? So that's the first point, right? So if the um, forcings were, uh, say, solar, then you wouldn't see this type of signature in, in how different parts of the atmosphere are warming. That's the first one. This is only one way that climate scientists um, sort of establish uh, this effect of humans in the climate system. That's the first one. The second one is that these models have been fairly good. If you go back in time and use earlier models, they're fairly good at predicting the growth in global temperatures that you would have seen in decades to come. So you go back to earlier versions of this. So now we're up to CIMIP-6, which is the latest uh, intercomparison of climate models that are going to fit into the six assessment report. If you go back to CIMIP-3, so those are much older models and even before that, they do fairly well, right? Because we didn't, you know, they were forward looking, but now we're in the future. Um, and you can compare the global temperatures to what those models predicted, given the emissions, the paths that we, we followed, and they're, they're spot on. So um, I know that a climate scientist will come up with a whole encyclopedia of uh, things to say, uh, but those are two of the things that I find are very uh, important that have built the credibility to my eyes uh, in how reliable these models are. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Thank you for talking me through that. Um, so I want to turn to the regional variation, something that you mentioned when you were talking through the top line findings. Um, and I, I guess I wanted to ask if you could say a little bit more about that piece. It seemed like that showed up fairly clearly in your results. Uh, I, my understanding is that there is some uncertainty there, but anything that you can tell us about kind of which parts of the world seem to have been affected more or less? And in particular, I also want to ask if the study sheds any light on the causality behind those regional differences. So can you really speak to the why some places would have been uh, more affected over the past decades than, than others? Uh, great question. So the, the first point of, about uncertainty. So there's a lot of uncertainty in, in studies like this, right? There's a um, uncertainty related to the econometric model that we first estimate. So basically the, the linkage between changes in weather and changes in TFB, that's an uncertain relationship. So there's uncertainty there. There's also uncertainty in how much warming or changes in weather trajectories or patterns um, are caused by humans. Um, so that uncertainty is captured by looking at different climate models, right? So different climate models will tell you that the warming uh, might be more pronounced or less pronounced uh, in different parts of the world and started earlier or later, right? So there's a lot of uncertainty there. Well, a lot. There's uncertainty there. And so we mesh those two sources of uncertainty um, in the results that we show in the paper. There's a third source of uncertainty uh, related to the model itself, the econometric model itself, because the plots that we show in the paper are based on a baseline model that we happen to pick first, right? So we're, it's the, the main model and we show a lot of the results there, but someone 
another researcher might have picked a slightly different model, right, with slightly different weather variables and things like that, small variations. So in the paper, we also explore that source of uncertainty. So that's more specification uncertainty and how do we characterize the weather and ACT-FP relationship. So even when we consider all of that, the results are at the global scale fairly robust and negative, right? So we find that you know, we didn't cherry pick the model that we showed. Um, it just falls well in the range of all these, you know, about more than 200 models that we explore. So that uncertainty, when you get deeper into the different parts of the world, the uncertainty is larger, right? So we get greater uncertainty um, and there's more variation depending on the model that you pick. If you allow, say, weather conditions to affect agriculture in different ways, depending on which part of the world, you get slightly different results um, at the regional scale. So that builds up the uncertainty at a fine scale although you don't see it as much at the global scale because sort of you, you wash out a lot by, by through aggregation. Um, in terms of like what drives uh, different response functions, the variability um, across regions, um, I would say it's more how sensitive agriculture is to extreme temperatures. That seems to be kind of the main driver of the results so far. So. Uh, Areas also that are warmer, already a, lar a higher level of temperature, tend to be hit uh, the hardest. So that's a, a big part of why you might see, uh, say, Africa and parts of Latin America and Asia uh, being particularly hit hard um, in, in our results. Hmm. Interesting. That feels somewhat counterintuitive to me, to be honest, where you would think that places that were already sort of adjusting for high temperatures might have some protective benefit from that. Uh, but it sounds like that's just, just the opposite. And in fact, when temperatures are already high, those increments actually make a bigger difference. Am I interpreting that correctly? Yeah, that's what we would think so, right? Uh, you might think that if you're more exposed to higher temperatures, uh, you know, in the, your baseline climate, then you should be more adapted, right? But that's an assumption. <laughs> it's an assumption, right? That we think that people are adapted to their local climate. Um, one thing that we find um, in our study is that over time, the response function to temperature is becoming steeper. What that means is that higher temperatures are found to be increasingly detrimental to TFP growth at a global scale. And that's not something that would you would think of as um, something that, that you would see in uh, agricultural sector that is adapting to a changing climate. It's actually appearing to be doing the opposite. Um, so we don't know exactly what that is, uh, where we find this uh, agriculture becoming more, more sensitive, but we do find that it's consistent with um, some of our previous uh, research, um, finding similar signatures in U.S. agriculture. In U.S. agriculture, we find, particularly in the Midwest, that agriculture is becoming increasingly sensitive to high temperatures and you know, by a large factor, actually. And, and in that uh, study, we found that it's really two compounding forces. One is a change in the composition of agricultural output in the region. So we found that agriculture is becoming more specialized in crop production in the Midwest. So that specialization into something that is more inherently more sensitive to weather fluctuations is making the region more sensitive overall. That's the first point. Then when we look specifically at the crop output, right, and, and rather than, uh, yeah, so when we look at the crop output, we find that crop production is also becoming increasingly sensitive um, in the Midwest. 
So it's like a, a compounding factor of increasing specialization and uh, a technological part that is making agriculture more uh, more sensitive uh, to high temperatures. So it's not unheard of that we find that in, in the global study. Uh, there's also precedent here at the U.S. agriculture. Um, but we don't know exactly what's driving that at the global scale. So more research is needed um, to, to get <laughs> at the bottom of that. <laughs> you've you've jumped ahead to one of my questions. I definitely do want to talk to you about kind of where this makes you want to look next. But but one more question before that. Um, so like all good researchers, you and your co-authors make sure to include caveats and important context for your findings, some of which we've talked about today. Um, but some of the some of those caveats relate to the benefits of fossil fuels and and rising CO2 concentrations on agriculture. And I think this is something that occasionally comes up in the narrative, which is, you know, there are actually some benefits from having a a greater concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere on agricultural output. So can you just say just a little bit more about those and and how that relates to the, the findings of the study that we're talking about now? Yeah, that's an important point to think about exactly the, the nature of our study and how to think about the contrafactual. The way to think about our results, it's not really comparing a world with fossil fuels to a world without fossil fuels. Okay. Um, that, that, I don't think that that's even a very useful contrafactual. Um, it would be a completely different world. So many things would be different. Maybe we wouldn't be talking here <laughs> in that a contrafactual world. So who knows, <laughs> right? So the way to think about our results, it's a world without anthropogenic climate change. So in a way, we keep everything else in the world, meaning our living standards going up, our use of fossil fuels, everything is the same. The R&D, the research and development uh, to make agriculture more productive that is coming from those high in living standards is also in that contrafactual world. The only thing that changes is the ability of humans to affect the climate system, right? It's like we had like a magic wand and we just changed the rules of physics right when the emissions are coming out and just doesn't affect the climate. Um, so that's that's really, it's a narrower counterfactual, but I think it's a useful one to think about how anthropogenic climate change is starting to become a headwind to what we're doing, right? Um, so that's how we're, you know, thinking about it because we have CO2 in the atmosphere that we don't remove, um, you know, so, so that stays in there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay. Well, yeah, I love that you said before, you know, more research is needed because that's definitely something that we joke about at RFF at times, that the answer to all of our problems is more research. But there but there really genuinely is always more research to be done. And, you know, every study reveals new questions. So uh, I'm curious, yeah, what issues did this study make you want to take up next? Uh, I, I think plenty, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> um, so more questions and, and, and more ideas, right, to, to, keep, to keep going. Uh, the first one is about the the finding that we uh, got about the rising sensitivity of global agriculture to higher temperatures. As I said, we found similar uh, signature in U.S. agriculture, and but we don't know why that is happening at the global scale. So that's definitely something that is um, uh, sort of bugging me. <laughs> I want to understand more <laughs> about what is, <laughs> why, why did we find that? Um, so that's one thing. Um, the other one is that, um, and this relates more to the productivity uh, literature in agriculture, and is that it's been documented that there's an increasing slowdown 
of agricultural productivity at a global scale. So that there's certain regions where you see agricultural productivity growth start to slow down. It's unclear exactly why that is the case. Is it re- the change in, in, in the nature of R&D between you know, private and public? Are the returns uh, you know, going down? I think that there's a lot going on there. And, and what really interests me is what's going to happen to the future, right? So if we are projecting climate change into the future, how much R&D do we need to counterbalance uh, future climate change impacts? So that's something that I'm uh, curious to know to know more about um, and uh, and dive uh, deeper into. So that's definitely something that it's on our um, on our agenda. Um, the other part is that, as I said, there's uncertainty here at the regional scale. So some of our efforts that we're already uh, starting is looking at regional studies. So we have a study uh, working now on uh, trying to do an analogous study on U.S. agriculture. We have one on uh, Chinese agriculture and we have uh, might soon start a project on European agriculture um, so that some of the uncertainty that we have in this global study, we can um, uh, hopefully address them in more uh, regional work. Hmm. All right. Well, that sounds like a full plate. I'm sure you'll have plenty to keep you busy over the next few years, that's for sure. But um, yeah, but these are such important topics and they have such global import for all of us who eat, which is all of us. And so, yeah, it's it's I'm grateful to have folks like you looking into them with such such rigor and enthusiasm. <laughs> so, <Yay. laughs> um, yeah. So, Ariel, thank you again for taking the time to talk through this paper with us. Again, it's it's uh, published in Nature Climate Change. Folks are welcome to to check it out to the extent that they are able to. And um, so, let me just close the podcast with our regular feature, top of the stack. And yeah, what would you want to recommend to our our listeners? Uh, good content, either on this topic or any topic really uh, that you might want to give a shout out to what's yeah. on the top of your stack sure so well literally on top of my stack there's a bunch of overdue referee reports but that's <laughs> not that's not what i'm going to talk about um, are you sure you don't want our some of our <laughs> listeners to maybe take those over for you I'm sure they wouldn't mind <laughs> yeah i i should uh, probably start uh, outsourcing them soon uh, but so one one book that i'm reading that relates to our previous discussion actually is a book by um alan olmstead and paul road those are two economic historians at uc davis and and, and michigan and the book is called Creating Abundance, Biological Innovation and American Agricultural Development. And, and the book uh, sort of chronicles the story of the role of innovation in the development of U.S. agriculture and how um, innovation, even in a rudimentary way back in, you know, sort of 19th century uh, you know, and earlier, really conquered new regions, right? So you had wheat expanding into regions that were, you know, were previously, um, you know, sort of out of reach. And by trial and error, uh, wonderful things can happen. And um, and so I think that um, I, I find this book really encouraging, right? So I find like humans are uh, brilliant creatures and capable of amazing things when we put our minds to it. And, um, and, and looking back at agricultural development over you know several centuries in here in the US and and the technologies that we have today available right i think that there's so much that we can do and and that's why incentives are so important to channel that energy to meet uh, these emerging challenges like climate change uh, and that's where i think also that rff plays a, a great role 
um, here thinking about how those incentives are put together um, you know, to, to meet these challenges. Well, that is both a very optimistic and very kind note to end on. So thank you so much. And yeah, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Great talking to you. Thanks. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.